Every film lover has something that I call cinematic comfort food. Certain genres that they just keep glomming onto. For me personally, uh, kaiju films, kung fu, German expressionist silent film, 80s slasher movies, universal monsters, superhero cartoons, trippy animation possibly involving superheroes. <laughs> that is all basically my catnip. I like great versions of that. I like good versions of that. I can have fun with mediocre or bad versions of that. Of course, not every genre is like that for me. For example, with romantic comedies, I can only like the good ones. You know what? Me too. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, I don't like rom-coms enough as a genre where I can just, like, put on a mediocre one and just sort of laugh my way through it and relate to it anyways. But I can do that with a mediocre slasher movie. So for this one, we're going a little outside my comfort zone. We're talking about When Harry Met Sally, which is one of the all-time classic rom-coms. I felt that this show should broaden its reach a little bit and cover some material it hasn't done before. We have done one rom-com, the uh, compare and contrast between Much Ado About Nothing, if that counts. Yeah. Yeah, but this is this is our first, like, legit rom-com. Yeah, and, and uh, in case Ryan's introduction didn't confirm it, this one is my pick this week. Yes, it is. Uh, my name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. And we initially planned this for Valentine's Day, but it didn't happen. Yeah, because um, I got COVID, and um, I slept for like two weeks. I only came out to eat, and then I went back to my little cave. But yeah, this is your pick, and from what I've understood, you watched this movie when you were very young. It affected you. You've been carrying it for a while. This one is special to you. Yeah, I actually didn't watch it when I was like, Super, super young. I was in high school, where still now when I that's was, still a formative period. Yeah, I guess it's, it is still a formative period. I watched it on a date night with a with a boyfriend, and I guess at that point I still thought saw Harry and Sally as like, oh wow, adults. And I'm like 17 now. I'm like 28, and I'm very close in age to like well, Sally and Harry are in the movie, and I'm like, wow, like you know, I, I think I view it a little bit more differently. Yeah, I was too cool for this movie. When I, when I was a kid, you know, I was a little boy, so, you know, I'm not going to watch this because it's girl crap. But then, you know, when I became a movie snob in my high school years, I was like, no, this is this is too broad a romantic comedy. I'm too with it and hep to the jive to get into this. Yeah, honestly, uh, when you said that you had never seen When Harry Met Sally before, I was really surprised because this seems like something that you would have out there and living amongst your many, many DVDs. Yeah, I am that kind of guy who will look at, like, a checklist of, like, the 100 most important yeah. films of all time and be like, okay, I haven't seen that one, that one, and that one, and now I need to. Yeah. But, yeah, rom-coms are one of my blind spots. A couple of days I'm going to watch Love and Basketball. That's another big one. I mean, honestly, I love, I'm a huge set for love stories, but I kind of don't really like rom-coms that much because they're really clichedly tropey and I get kind of annoyed with like the formula sometimes and at least for the most part when Harry met Sally either I think it avoids the trappy the crappy trope and does like the classic ones best like the third act breakup between them I and mean, that's not even really a breakup because they're never a couple until the very end it's not over like a stupid misunderstanding it's something that actually has some weight to it yeah, for me my entry for rom-coms was the early screwball comedies which you know defensive film snobs will say are is a completely distinct genre it's like no it's a at the very most, a precursor. Uh, because it's okay for, to be a cis dude film snob, cinema bro, and like His Girl Friday or Bringing Up Baby. When Harry Met Sally is a harder sell for the Christopher Nolan, Fight Club is the greatest movie of all time type of nerd. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but yeah, I, I just picked it up because it was something that I, I was curious about seeing. And I was like, let's watch it on, on a date. So... I think we should probably, before we start picking this movie apart, we should go in the recap. I also realized I didn't introduce myself, but you all probably know who I am by now. It's me, Rachel. Back again. All right, film synopsis. This film begins in 1977, where Harry Burns and Sally Albright have both graduated from the University of Chicago and agree to share a drive to New York City. And, and Sarah, Sally has, like, the most Farrah Fawcett hair. There's, like, a whole scene where she has to put more hairspray in it before they go into the restaurant. They're making trying to make Billy Crystal look younger by giving him bangs, and he looks the oldest he does in that one scene. <laughs> yeah! 
<laughs> He's 40 pretending to be 21. <laughs> Yeah, Sally is attending grad school for journalism while Harry is starting his career. Their jobs don't really matter in this film. Yeah. More on that later. Harry is dating Sally's friend Amanda, but meets her for the first time when they're about to go on the road trip. He is making out with Amanda when she pulls up. That is how she's introduced to him. The journey is awkward and grating. Harry loudly eats grapes and then spits them out the window. Well, at first he accidentally spits them, maybe not so accidentally spits them into the window. And he's like, oh, I'll roll down the window. Our romantic hero, everyone. Uh, <laughs> Sally is irked by Harry's uncouth cynicism and his belief that men and women can't be platonic friends uh, since the specter of sex will ultimately ruin their bond. And more on that later. Yeah, we're, we're going to go into that a lot. <laughs> at a diner, Sally angrily accuses Harry of making a pass at her when he says that he finds her attractive. They part in New York City on prickly terms. Five years later, Harry and Sally bump into each other on an airplane. During an uncomfortable chat, Sally mentions that she's dating Harry's neighbor, Joe. Harry surprises Sally by mentioning that he's engaged to a woman named Helen. After a mild thaw in their discourse, Harry suggests that he and Sally should be friends. Sally retorts by bringing up Harry's earlier assertion that platonic friendships between men and women aren't possible. Which he denies. Yeah, Harry denies saying it and then clumsily tries to qualify his position. The pair soon goes their separate ways afterwards. Another five years after that. I read six years, but it's been some time, yeah. one way or the other. Harry and Sally run into each other again at a bookstore. They have coffee and talk about their failed relationships. Sally and Joe split up because she wanted a family and Joe was afraid of marriage. Helen abandoned Harry for another man. Both are too wounded by these breakups to open themselves up to romance anytime soon, but they soon become friends with each other, sharing personal feelings, making each other laugh, and watching late-night TV over the phone together, which my mom and uh, my Auntie Donna, her twin sister, used to do all the time. Oh, that's so sweet. Especially on true crime shows, because oh, they were into that stuff. Yeah, before streaming, like, my friends and I were like, well, watching super nanny via screen share discord i think that the conversations are primarily how harry and sally are characterized and there are a couple of you know no dialogue showing but not telling moments that were pretty funny like when sally's putting letters into the mail and she's checking every single one and she's got a whole stack and harry just takes them from her and just shoves them in there there's quite a bit of that uh, <laughs> speaking of which during a new year's eve party Harry and Sally promise to dance with each other on future New Year's uh, celebrations should neither of them be romantically linked at the time. They then share a slow waltz cheek to cheek, which reveals a growing attraction as they, you know, turn around and the camera stays in the same place. And you see their faces gradually shift over it. And even while I was watching it, I was like, that's good. That is yeah. good development. I know. It, it, I think that, you know, their chemistry feels, like, natural and, and real. Like, they're not just being shoved together because the plot demands. I mean, they, they keep running into each other serendipitously, but I don't know. It's I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> and talking about good bits of visual storytelling in Harry, when Harry met Sally, definitely that part, just top marks all around, facial acting from Ryan and Crystal, very believable, the straightforward cinematography by Baron Sonnenfeld before, you know, Adam's Family Values and the Men in Black films, he was the cinematographer for When Harry Met Sally, very good selection there, very simple shots there, but uh, tells the story very effectively. I can drone on about that scene for a while, but very, very well done. <laughs> you were like, that's good, we were watching it. <laughs> In denial about their feelings for each other, Harry and Sally try to set each other up with uh, Marie and Jess, their respective best friends. Marie doesn't really care for Harry, and Jess isn't all that into Sally, but on a double date, Jess and Marie are instantly attracted to each other yeah, and quickly like, hook up. Okay, I'm, I, I was like, like Jess, I'm also a writer, and what starts their conversation, they're kind of ignoring each other to begin with, but she quotes an article that he wrote, and that's like something that's never happened to him before. So, you know, there's an, there's an appreciation between the two of them immediately, and the scene's pretty funny. Like, they both, you know, their respective men and women, they separate, they go off to the side, and they're like, you know, it's like, do you think, like, just be gentle with Harry or like, be gentle with Sal? Like, just got over a breakup. Like, we won't, we won't rush into things, like, because they're each interested in each other. And then Jess is like, I need to go home. I got work. And he's like, I'm going to take a cab. And Marie's like, me too. And they just immediately leave. <laughs> 
that part felt very movie to me, but I still liked it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you ever, like, awkwardly tried to leave something with someone you're interested in, it, it felt very real to me. <laughs> yeah, Jess and Marie soon become engaged after this. Yeah. Sally calls Harry late at night, distraught that her ex, who left her because he was afraid of marriage, quickly got engaged to the next woman who came along, which makes Sally feel very it, it, insecure and worthless. in his office. Too. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Harry rushes to her apartment to comfort her, and while doing so, they eventually have sex. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, and the thing is, this for a movie that like talks about sex a lot, it's not that there's sex scene that it's like a fade to black, and then you just kind of see Meg Ryan's beautiful curls take up the screen, and then you just see Billy Crystal's Harry's, like, non-flashback face. He's like, holy shit. He's got this thousand-yard stare that made me think of the last scene in The Graduate. (laughs) And and Meg Ryan is just so angelic yeah, and just like smiling yeah, and nuzzling up to him and kissing can... his chest. It's just very sweet. And he's just like, oh. <laughs> so distressed over this, Harry quickly dresses and tries to slip out the next morning. Sally notices Harry trying to leave without waking her, which recalls an earlier remark he made about how fond he is of loving women and then just taking off without any notice the next day and never yeah, seeing them again. Like, how long are you to hold her before I leave? Between 30 seconds and all night is enough. And I'm like, like cuddling. Come on, Harry. That's like one of the best things. Yeah, this may lead Sally to make a saddening assumption. Uh, Harry and Sally's friendship cools considerably, and they talk less and less. Their passive-aggressive resentment boils over at Jess and Marie's wedding. They get into an explosive argument, culminating in Sally expressing that they can't be friends anymore. Mm-hmm. I think part of Harry's character development is that he can't take certain parts of a relationship, including friendship, uh, so flippantly. And I, and I think, you know, part of his art, after his argument with Sally at the wedding, I think he kind of realizes that, you know, he did hurt her feelings. And he spends, like, the next part of the movie is like a montage of him leaving her uh, voicemails where he's like, it's almost Christmas, which means it's the season to grovel. And, like, he sings a song, and he's just really, he's really trying to fix the damage. You know, one of the not-so-subtle thematic motifs in this film was that Harry is... You know, very bitter and caustic, and it informs his wit, and his sense of humor is armor to protect him from being hurt again. Mm-hmm. And I think that when he does, like, the one scene, the scene after he, later on when he runs into his ex-wife and her man, I, I don't know if it's the guy that she left him for or not, but he kind of has, like, a very a very caustic breakdown that he takes out on Jess Marie and Sally, but, like, as soon as, like, it's cooled down, he's kind of the chance to, like, see, he immediately apologizes to her. At a New Year's Eve party later on, Sally is feeling lonely while everybody else is celebrating. Meanwhile, Harry is pacing around the city. Struck by a bolt of passion, Harry begins sprinting to the party in that well-worn romantic comedy trope. Mm -hmm. He arrives just as Sally is set to leave, and he declares his love for her. Sally accuses him of saying this out of a sense of lonely desperation, but Harry wins her over by recounting the elements of her character that has earned his devotion to her. They kiss, then marry three months later, 12 years to the day after they first met. Yeah, honestly... Harry's monologue about what, why he loves Sally and, like, why he's there always gets me a little bit. But it's just like, when you finally realize who you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to start right now. <laughs> that scene also feels very movie, and I can get why other people tear up during that, but I, I rolled my fucking eyes. Oh, I'm a sap, Ryan. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that later, bitter stick-in-the-mud jerk that I am. <laughs> Uh, all right, so... Yeah, let's talk about the development of yes. this film. Following her Oscar nomination for co-writing Silkwood, Nora Ephron met with director Rob Reiner and producer Andy Scheinman about developing a project. Ephron wasn't too keen on Reiner's pitch, but got interested when Reiner began talking casually about the conflicted feelings he had as a newly single man following his crappy divorce. Reiner mentioned that he always wanted to make a film about two friends who sleep together despite the risk for their relationship. Ephron really liked that idea, and Reiner sold the project to Columbia Pictures. Efron was a journalist before she was a screenwriter. Are we going to say who one of her ex-husbands is? 
<laughs> yeah, she's been divorced a couple of times, and yeah. uh, as a number of her films, uh, she throws herself into films. There's yeah, a lot of autobiographical uh, Carl, elements to them. She was married to Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein, and apparently um, at, at parties, if she got really drunk, people go up to her and say, so who's uh, who's Deep Throat? And she would tell people who it's like, my felt. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah. a good story. <laughs> she, she was like, you just ask her, and she's like, yeah, sure, I'll tell you who he is. <laughs> anyway, back to yeah. Well, while she was Efron. while she was working on the screenplay, uh, she kind of works with writers' block passages by interviewing various people on at the studio about their romantic experiences. Throughout Harry Met Sally, you see these interludes where two elderly people talk about how they first met. This is all culled from the interviews, but she also interviewed uh, Scheinman and Reiner extensively. I think all the scenes with the, like, the little old couples are so cute because they're all so different. There's like the the couple who were married briefly and then they got a divorce and the husband had a few other wives and girlfriends and he doesn't remember any of them, but his wife, she sure does. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Efron modeled Harry after Reiner and Scheinman, but primarily Reiner, particularly his feelings of bitterness masked by humor. Mm -hmm. Sally was based on Efron herself. She was a journalist, just like Sally. And also Efron had a habit of meticulously giving detailed instructions while ordering at restaurants. Oh my God. Honestly, that's probably like one of the funniest like running gags. It's just the way Sally orders things at restaurants. She gives like all these really detailed instructions. And as like somebody who was a waitress for a while fucking hate customers like that and i think um after the fake the orgasm scene she had no before before that she was putting together her own sandwich on the plate did you notice that detail i did yeah <laughs> yeah and when harry met sally sally's ordering at restaurant techniques are like played off as like a quirky, fun aspect of, of her character, but as like as somebody who's worked service jobs, I'm like fuck you. Yeah, I know. Like the waitress is like, uh, I'm like, yeah, I would be doing that too. And people are like, can you heat up this sandwich? No, we can't. Why not? And I'm like, well, we don't have a microwave. Why don't you have a microwave? I'm like, there, there's no room for it. Like, you don't do full service stuff. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the shoulder pads in this film haven't aged particularly well, but Sally B and a motherfucking Karen sure hasn't yeah. either. <laughs> I don't think she's that Karen-y. <laughs> well, she doesn't have a 10 megaton nuclear meltdown on a server if one aspect of her sandwich isn't correct. <laughs> if she does, it's not in the film. Oh. <laughs> it took Efron several years to hammer out the screenplay. It started with the working title of How They Met and went through numerous changes, right up to the point where they were shooting the thing. Reiner actually had a contest where he promised a case of champagne to whoever came up with the right title. I could not find any evidence of who came up with When, when Harry Met Sally. I'm assuming it might have been Efron herself. Yeah, I think it's a good title. Reiner directed Stand By Me and The Princess Bride while Efron was writing the, uh, the screenplay. Billy Crystal became interested in the project following his divorce. Efron got divorced, Reiner got divorced, and Crystal. The people who were involved in making this movie have all been around the block a few times, and I think that translates to the story itself. I agree. Other personal aspects uh, were worked into the film. Reiner and Crystal liked to watch TV over the phone with each other, and at some point they decided that would be a cute little aspect of uh, Harry and Sally's relationship. I thought, I thought it story. was really cute. They're watching Casablanca together, the ending, and, you can, and it's another way to characterize them because Sally has like a nice television, and Harry's is just kind of junky looking. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that right away too. One thing that everybody mentions when they talk about when Harry met Sally is that the screenplay originally had a bittersweet ending where Harry and Sally repair their friendship, but they avoid uh, pursuing their romance any further. Uh, Reiner and Efron ultimately agreed to change it to a more feel-good ending, despite the fact that they felt that this would be less believable. One of, all the, one of the other reasons why the ending was changed is because Reiner did meet somebody and fell in love and got married. So he was feeling a little bit more optimistic about relationships. I don't know. Personally, I think that... I don't know, also, this is, this is... I'm the sap point of view. Ryan's the cynic. So I think that it's better that they end up together because it offers more of a resolution. Like, there's enough buildup to, like... 
them getting together. Maybe it, it could have been less movie. It could have ended, you know, maybe on a little bit more of an ambiguous note. Like, they go out to dinner or something, and then you see that they got married a few months later. But that's not quite as dramatic because, you know, even if this is, you know, a, a, I, I think a much more grounded romantic comedy, it is still a movie. And also, I feel like after watching all of the things that they go through, it's nice to kind of see a happy ending, you know? I do think that this thing ping-pongs back and forth between feeling movie and then feeling grounded. Like, the Pictionary scene, very grounded. I have had Pictionary experiences like that. Oh, yeah, that was really funny, because Jess's guesses are, like, all really stupid. <laughs> and, and, and then out of nowhere, heightened movie reality comes right back uh, roaring yeah. in. And I did find that a bit disjointed, but yes, stick in the mud asshole that I am. If they used the original ending, I probably would have liked this movie a little bit more. It probably would have felt more emotionally honest with me. I don't know. Maybe they would have dropped the ball on the bittersweet ending. I don't think they would have, but... Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't think it's impossible for friends to sleep with each other and then for it to complicate things and then to work through that and end up getting married at the end. That is not the most impossible to believe story in the world when Harry met Sally could happen, at least on those strokes. And if they did use the bittersweet ending, I don't think this movie would have made nearly as much money. I don't think it would have been the crowd pleaser that it was. I don't think it would have the legs that it would have where people are still talking about it like, 25 30 yeah, years later I feel like that maybe if they had if they had just like changed the ending where they fixed their friendship i feel like that they had developed enough of the emotional investment in that they are like a, a good match they do balance each other out and, they, and like sure that they argue but it's always sort of like a respectful argument unless when they're actually having a fight because i feel like there's some relationships in romantic comedies where all they do is bicker 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 and like oh we're together and i'm like, like sure they can bicker at each other but i feel like there needs to be some sort of underlying affection for each other and for it to work in my opinion harry and sally have that Oh, even when Harry, when Harry met Sally is in heightened movie reality, you still get the impression that Harry and Sally actually like hanging out with each other. Yeah, like one story is from this that I don't know if you read that during your about it in your research. You know the scene where they're in the New York City Museum and Harry just starts talking in like beeper, pepper, popper, like the funny accent. And Sally just starts laughing. It won't, if you notice, she looks off camera because that was improvised. Oh, and, I believe that right yeah, away. That, yeah, that, 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 that is something Billy. At, she was looking at Rob Reiner and you're like, okay, we're, we're filming. All right, I'm going to react to this like Sally. <laughs> that does strike me as something that Billy Crystal would just yeah, make up on the honestly, spot. Yeah, yeah. At some point or another, we're going to have to talk about Katz's delicatessen scene. Yeah, yeah. The most immortal yes, scene yes, in the yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Now, out of a number of things I've read about it, one series that I keep going back to whenever I'm talking about romantic comedies is uh, one that Carolyn Seed writes for the AV club called When Romance Meets Comedy. Yep. Every two weeks, she does a think piece about a various rom-com. She's been doing it for a few years now, so she's covered all the obvious ones, and it's like, she must have written about when Harry met Sally at some point, and of course she did. And she frames the delicatessen scene as the scene that epitomizes the collaborative nature of the film, mm -hmm. whereas this is largely interpreted as Nora Ephron's baby, and it is. Still, Reiner's involved, Crystal's involved, Meg Ryan's involved. They all made the movie together, and... All of them contributed to this scene. Meg Ryan came up with a basic idea of faking an orgasm in a public setting. Crystal suggested the punchline. <laughs> Rob I'll Reiner's mother. <laughs> yeah, Rob Reiner's mother delivered that punchline. Yes. And yeah. they worked hard on this. Meg Ryan did hours of fake orgasm takes. Yeah, and you were just kind of like. It doesn't quite seem realistic enough, but I like I think she's going over the top to fuck with Harry a little bit. Like I think after a certain point, like in the when she starts, he's like, Oh my god, she's really doing this. But she commits to the bit. And I think he, she has his respect at the end for doing it because he just kind of smiles and he's like, mm, yeah. Oh, I believe you. She's trying to embarrass him. Yeah. She's just like right away when she just starts like throwing her head back and slamming the table and she's just like, Yes! 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 And then everybody in the restaurant is just staring at them. <laughs> yeah. Reiner recalled in test screenings, women tended to laugh their asses off, whereas with men, stone-eyed silence. Yeah, well, because I think part of Harry's, 
ego needing to be displayed a little bit is that he's like, I'm the world's greatest lover. I made a woman meow. So I think that Sally's like, yeah, well, you know what? Maybe you need to be a little bit more of a caring lover and not just a sex machine, which is why he's like, for all women, I'm going to fake it. I mean, plenty of guys think that fucking is like, you know, a a car and you just chug away at a piston like you're tenderizing something. (laughs) (laughs) That is the laugh of knowledge. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to go too detailed in my personal life. but (laughs) Uh, This was filmed at a real delicatessen. Y'all go there. Katz has hung a placard over the table where they shot it at, reading, Where Harry Met Sally. Hope you have what she had. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm sure many a selfie of women having fake orgasms has been taken yeah, in that chair. Yeah, I know. I need to be one there. I don't know. I want to go there and do that. <laughs> Okay, let's let's talk a bit more about the cast. First, Billy Crystal is Harry. I think a big part of why this movie feels believable and grounded in many of its scenes is that Billy Crystal isn't movie star hot. Yeah, that I was going to talk about that too. Like all of the characters, like the main four, the main couple, like Meg Ryan is beautiful. She's gorgeous, but she I feel like she's not like, you know, movie star ridiculous over the top gorgeous. You know, I think she is very pretty. And you Carrie Fisher, gorgeous. And Bruno Kirby is Jeff. Like, he's a little chubby. He's got a mustache. Like, they look like people you know. Yeah, and I do think that lots of conventionally attractive men have been good leads in romantic comedies. Richard Gere is usually very good in romantic comedies. But uh, it, it helps that Harry's a bit of a schlub. Yeah, like, I think Sally is, like, by like an inch, is taller than him, too. One thing that I came across while I was looking into think pieces about when Harry met Sally is that somebody ranked all of Harry's sweaters. <laughs> oh, I, I think honestly, it's very like late '80s in the fashion for like the main part of the movie. Sally's got like big glasses. And a lot of people find Billy Crystal obnoxious and only amusing in small doses, and sometimes I'm there, but I think he works in this role. I mean, my introduction to him uh, as a, you know, 90s child was Mike Wazowski in uh, <laughs> Monsters, Inc. <laughs> I probably first saw him in The Princess Bride, which is most people's idea of your ideal Billy Crystal. He's, he's there for five minutes, and then he's gone. <laughs> I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! But yeah, he's a fantastic foil, and whenever somebody talks about Billy Crystal as an actor, this is often the first thing that comes up, and I get it. He looks at Sally with real warmth in his eyes as they fall in love. And this film's dialogue is ridiculously suited to his strengths, I think. Mm -hmm. Whenever he goes on some sort of weird, whiny tangent, I feel like in a lesser actor, it would have just come across as being like, wow, he's a real pain in the ass. Like, Harry is a pain in the ass, but we love him. All right, next up, Meg Ryan as Sally. Uh, before Meg Ryan got the part, Susan Day, Elizabeth Perkins, Elizabeth McGovern, and Molly Ringwald were all considered. Ringwald was almost cast, but Ryan lobbied hard. She really wanted this part. Mm-hmm. And this wound up being her breakout role. She wasn't, like, a huge presence in Hollywood up to this point. Like, she was working up to this time, but this made her into a star. Mm-hmm. And every other film she was in usually was a riff on what this was, unless it was, like, actively trying to work against it. Yeah, and honestly, I've seen Meg Ryan in a couple other romantic comedies, and, like, she's good. Like, she was queen of the romantic comedies for a while, but I like her best as Sally. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Ryan stan. Even in other Nora Ephron comedies, I fucking hate You Got Mail. I don't like that either. I don't even like the movie it's based off of. So. You don't like the shop around the corner? I think it's adorable. I don't. I don't want the, the Judy Garland fan here to come in and hit me over the head with the pillow. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think Garland was in the shop around the corner. Are you thinking of something else? Judy Garland was in the shop around the corner. Uh, I know the male lead was Jimmy Stewart, but uh, I don't know no, we're okay, maybe we're thinking of something else that has a similar concept in it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, okay. yeah, you've got male as a remake of The Shop Around the Corner. Okay, which I feel like might have a similar concept to a Judy Garland film that I didn't like. Well, Judy <laughs> Garland is fine in it. 
But yeah, Meg Ryan is bubbly in this. She is playing your standard romantic comedy type who is neurotic in scare quotes, but also optimistic. Yeah. In this one, she's fastidious about restaurant orders, as opposed to most of the other rom-coms that rip off when Harry met Sally, where, you know, the woman is incredibly runway model gorgeous, but she's clumsy. She trips over stuff. Yeah, I think that the whole restaurant ordering thing is just a symptom of Sally being a little bit of a control freak. Yeah, maybe one of the reasons why she can't admit that she is falling in love with this Harry guy is because it involves removing control of the situation and surrendering to something where the outcome can't be entirely planned. Mm-hmm, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, the other two people we'll be talking about in the cast, because this movie just has four people in it, really. Yeah. Carrie Fisher is Marie and Bruno Kirby is Jess. I love these people. I want the, the movie to be about them. I liked them better than Harry and Sally. I think that Marie and Jess are the best beta couple in a romantic comedy because i mean they are kind of like thrown together but there's sort of like a real sort of chemistry and like affection between them like the scene where um you know after they each get their respective phone calls from harry and sally after they sleep together and then like right after they hang up she's just like promise me i will never have to go out there again he's like i promise you and it's just it's sweet. I really like that, too. And rom-coms sink or swim, depending on whether or not you like the supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And Fisher and Kirby are just phenomenal in this. I found Harry and Sally irritating as often as I found them likable. So <laughs> the fact that I had Marie and Jess to fall back on. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always like a point of comparison for like the, the beta couple. Like, oh. What's their love story like? I think that Harry and Sally, they spend, like, years knowing each other and, like, a decent amount of time just as friends. But Marie and Jess, they speed run through all the bullshit. I think that they were like, I know what I want out of life. You know what you want out of life. Let's settle it out. And they get married, like, not terribly too long after meeting. Oh, yeah. Their B-plot is essentially there to serve as a contrast to Harry and Sally. Mm -hmm. I would like to see another film where it's just, like, the opposite. (laughs) <laughs> where you focus on the speedrunners and then the, the two people in the background are just like, oh, they hate each other. Now they love each other. Oh, just fuck already. Yeah, I feel like that would that would be pretty fun. There must be a couple of them. I'm, Probably. Yeah. I, that's got to spelunk because sometimes it's just like oh, romantic comedies. They're just so binary and heteronormative. and More on that later. Yeah, more on that later. But first, let's talk about the music a bit. Primarily, this features Harry Connick Jr., who is... Still an up-and-comer at the time, fronting a big band arranged by Michael Shaman. Uh, Reiner hired Connick uh, because his voice reminded him of a young Frank Sinatra, which I'm not picking up on, although I can tell that Connick is really going for that. Yeah, he really is. For a moment, I was like, it's not Frank Sinatra, but yeah, enough of it. <laughs> yeah, this one, Harry Connick Jr. is first of many Grammys. Harry Connick Jr. is one of those artists who is incredibly respectable and aggressively tasteful and seems to be grown in a vat for the purpose of winning Grammys. Yeah, I actually watched a made-for-TV movie of South Pacific where he's the ill-fated lieutenant. The rest of the needle drops are filled out by love song standards from the Great American Songbook, sung by Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald, Ray Charles, Bing Crosby, that sort of deal. I like that kind of music, so I, I, I like it. Yeah, it's a very classic touch, and it does give the film a certain degree of timelessness. As I mentioned before, the shoulder pads haven't aged great, (laughs) but this type of music hasn't been, like, Billboard top 40 pop hit for, like, decades, but it's never gone away, and I don't think it's ever going to. Oh, no. There's there's always going to be a subset of the music listening crowd who is going to want to listen to smoky-voiced people sing Cole Mm -hmm. Porter songs in very nice clothes, and I think think that's just gonna hit people the same way no matter what and yeah the soundtrack was a big success went double platinum and it's one of the many things of when harry met sally that sort of reminds me of woody allen movies particularly the soundtracks being filled out by 1920s and 1930s jazz standards but allen picked more nerdy references whereas when harry met sally is more general yeah this is the part where i say i've only ever seen one woody allen film and he can go fuck himself 
Yeah, one of the reasons I haven't covered a Woody Allen movie on this podcast is just because I have a hard time thinking that we're going to be talking about the story without it being overwhelmed by Woody Allen being a horrible sleazebag. Yeah, he's just a massive man. Yeah, reception of this film. Uh, it was released with a platform technique. Basically, that means, like back in the day, they opened the film in a few theaters and then started spreading it out as the word of mouth began rolling. This is traditionally the way that, that movies were premiered, but when blockbuster films like Jaws and The Godfather came out, massive releases all over the country at the same time started getting more popular. So when Harry Metzali did a more old-school thing, this was largely done because it was released in the middle of the summer and was competing against Tim Burton's Batman movie and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like big tentpole yeah. things that were guaranteed to make a shitload. Billy Crystal was afraid that when Harry met Sally, was going to get buried by those two movies. Yeah. For the most part, it wasn't. It made $92.8 million off of a $16 million budget. It was a big, fat, stinking hit. Yeah, that's good. This sort of set the pace for what is now called counter-programming. The idea is that in the middle of the summer, where all the big blockbuster movies are mm -hmm. coming out, the $100 million action-adventure films, the superhero punch-ups, maybe you're getting a little sick of having to go see one of those every week. Maybe you want to see something a little more low-key, a little yeah, lower so stakes. Your grandma too. Yeah, so often when the next Avengers thing comes out, sometimes they'll be like, hey, let's throw a rom-com like a week in between that and the next one, just so when people are sick of big orange gasoline explosions. <laughs> and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. When Harry Met Sally is one of the first instances where it definitely worked. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people try to chase that lightning in a bottle since. Critically, it was very well received. Uh, Roger Ebert loved it. He declared Rob Reiner the best comedic director working today, and he believed that Ryan and Crystal had fantastic chemistry that carried the film. Roger Ebert is one of those critics who is incredibly well known. I cite him on this podcast fairly often, and he's also an incredibly nice critic. <laughs> I have gone through a number of his reviews where he had something kind to say about execrable garbage. In contrast, Karen Jones in the New York Times described When Harry Met Sally as a very funny film that he laughed throughout at, but he found it to be uh, hollow. He compared it unfavorably to Woody Allen films, saying it was like a network TV sitcom version of, of an Allen movie. Now, that statement has not aged very well, honestly. <laughs> you know, it hasn't. I can see where he's coming from, though, because Harry and Sally are pretty thinly sketched out. Their careers are barely mentioned, as I brought up. Each of them seem to only have one friend. On the other hand, I can see why that was done. The film is only 96 minutes long, and I do think that Harry and Sally are fleshed out about as much as they need to be, especially considering that this movie has zero fat. Yeah, there's no antagonist either. There's no bad guy. There's no, I don't know, dumb fiancé who only exists to get dumped. Once again, it's astonishing how brisk this thing runs, especially since it's supposed to be taking place over the course of 12 years. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I do think that some of the characterization was intentional, because... Obviously, this is pulled from personal stuff, as I mentioned before, Efron's background, Reiner's background, all that went into there. So I think that sometimes there is blurry, not quite filled out parts put in there so the audience can put themselves in there and relate to the characters more directly. That's true. They really did. If it was a television show versus a, a movie, they would have had more time to flesh things out. But there's no time. And it would, anything else would have just been a distraction. And it's an incredibly efficient film. Just like runs like a Swiss watch. Like every line of dialogue, even when they're just dithering away about Casablanca, is still there with a purpose. It is still building their relationship. Mm -hmm. As you just said, there's no external antagonist. There's no external conflict. It's all character development. Which I personally really like because one of the things I always hate about romantic comedies is that there's always some like, there's always like, oh, her dumb fiance. There's like nothing wrong with him or with her. But she's he or she is going to get dumped by the end of this movie so the main characters can be together. And sometimes I think it works. Other times it's just kind of like, it's predictable and trite and insults the, the other character. I mean, I guess... I guess, but I think there's also a conse a consequence to developing that character archetype too much because honestly, like if you watch The Office, Karen Filippelli, you know, the, the gal Rashida Jones, the gal that Jim dates for a while, 
I actually ended up sympathizing with her more than Jim and Pam by the end of her character tenure. Oh, me too. Uh, but I felt that was intentional and part of the creative team. That they thought, you know, it would complicate things in a messy, more interesting way if the audience didn't hate Karen. Yeah, I, I agree. But I feel like it's also very pointed that they don't show Jim breaking up with her. You hear it from Karen later that it was kind of like awful and kind of mean and shitty. And then he goes back to Scranton to to ask Pam out. And I think that maybe they should have shown that. But if they didn't, I think... If they had shown it, people wouldn't have been as excited that Jim and Pam were finally together. I think that they should have gone with it and shown Jim breaking up with Karen. Yeah, possibly. I mean, the office is old enough to the point where people are, like, rediscovering it or revisiting it. And the most common reaction is like, oh, wait, Jim kind of sucks. Yeah, honestly, yeah, Jim does kind of suck. Moving on to the themes. This one you have thoughts about. The central thesis of the film of women and men can't be platonic friends because sex ruins everything. My notes writes this as being heteronormative as fuck. Yeah, so men and women can't be friends. That's the thesis of this movie. The movie kind of gives an answer. It kind of leans into saying, no, they can't be friends because sex does complicate things, which is true. But I feel like it also doesn't lean into it enough because... Harry and Sally, they are friends. Before they fall in love with each other, they have a real friendship. Also, I do I believe that men and women can't be friends? Um, obviously, no, um, because we're here on this podcast together. Let's see. I, 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 th- I think it's a very uh, a binary view. I guess my criticism of the movie is that, you know, yeah, like, what about queer people? Like, people of, people of other genders. Like, what would have happened if, you know, Harry and Sally were both women or men or, or non-binary people? Um, you know, and, and relationships in real life are, are messy and complicated. Like, people are friends with old exes, friends with sex partners, you know? It doesn't really... It's not all or nothing, you know? Oh, yeah, there are definitely other shades of gray in that. Speaking personally, I am friends with people I've I've slept with. I'm friends with people I dated in the past. I have been friends with people I've been attracted to without ever going there. I have been friends with people that I'm not attracted to and never really went with that. (laughs) And, you know, bringing up polyamory, for example. Yeah. uh, this, This whole question, women and men can't be platonic friends because sex ruins everything. With certain breakdowns in monogamy culturally over the past 10 or 15 years, that question starts feeling awfully quaint. Yeah, it really does. And I feel like it's also kind of, it it feels a little bit insulting to people, too, that like, oh, yeah, you can't have an opposite sex friend or, you know, be friends with someone you have had sex with or or some other, you know, uh, shades, shades of gray. And, you know, and I feel like this does give plenty of fodder for other romantic comedies for people to explore those themes. I know there are TV shows that are doing it, but I really don't watch a lot of TV. I don't have the time. I also think it's a bit condescending to men to imply that they are incapable of maintaining a respectful relationship to a person that that, that they're attracted to but are not having sex with because they're just hormonal, sex-crazed fiends who cannot control themselves and are therefore not responsible for their actions if they act out of line. Yeah. Like a certain vice president who won't have dinner with female colleagues without his wife present. (laughs) Yeah, mother said I can't go out today. And, and I feel like it's also it's also a little insulting to women that we're all frigid and we're not all, you know, women are horny as fuck, like a lot. Yeah, forcing women to be the gatekeepers. Yeah, I, I feel like that that's also kind of unfair. It was on a pedestal of like, you know, Madonna whore complex. And if somebody does ha- and wind up having sex, that makes it the woman's fault because it's her job to stop it. Yeah, and I, I think that um, one of the things I had written a note about was if I was personally writing, you know, a modern day version of uh, when Harry met Sally, kind of trying to stick with like the same theme of friends who have an intimate friendship slowly fall in love, I would have Harry and Sally be friends with benefits because 
one of the things we're going to talk about is what complicates a platonic friendship more, sex or romance? It's romance. Yeah, this has come up on just about every piece of discourse I've came across in When Harry Met Sally, especially in comment sections underneath it, where people just repeatedly point out, no, people don't get it. It isn't the sex that complicates their relationship, it's the emotional intimacy. The sex just kind of happens. It's not an exclamation point in the, in, in the story at all. No, it's not. You don't. You don't even see it. It's very, very chaste. Yeah, and I think it's the fact that they they have been like vulnerable to each other before, but now they're vulnerable to each other on like another level. Like in my own, and, and honestly, and in my own personal experiences, you know, it was the romance that complicates things the most, not sex. Oh, and multiple times throughout their careers, both Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal have been asked this question. Meg Ryan is. Usually, unequivocally, yes, I think men and women can be platonic friends without sex complicating things. Billy Crystal's a bit more wavery on it. He's like, yes, but I think you have to work at it. I kind of agree with that, too, a little bit. I think that if there is some sort of complication in a friendship, you know, whether it's, you know, romantic, sexual, or just intimate in all the different ways of intimacy, you got to talk about it. Because, like I said earlier, relationships are messy, and you know you got to take care of the ones that you value. Uh, yeah, that, that's basically what I was about to say. Uh, I found through trial and error, mostly error, especially in my <laughs> teenage years, <laughs> if you are talking to a new person and you are attracted to them and you want, and you see them in that way, you should be open about it. You should be direct about it. You should talk to them about it in a way that, you know, isn't pushy, but makes your feelings clear. Because if you force it to become an elephant in the room, that's the thing that's going to cause it. Yeah, the elephant in the room will always stomp all over everything. Yeah, be honest with each other. It's that easy. It's not, but, you know, yeah, try. I, mean, I think that that it is, like, in my own personal experiences, it is hard to have that, to really, you know, I guess, like, because like, of, like, let yourself be out there to sort of, like, you know, unburden yourself. To not be so self-contained about feelings and thoughts, but you know what? It, it's worth it, even if it is kind of, like, draining to be like, hey, we have to talk about... We all gotta sit down and talk about like this, you know, the serious thing because, you know, I, I think that I, I do like, you know, movies and stories where you do follow the characters when they're together long after they get together because that that's real life, you know. Really, when the weight is holding onto you, onto you that way, the worst thing the other person can say usually is something along the lines of "I don't see you that way," and that's not that bad. I mean, it's bad when you're, you know, sixteen-year-old girl, but then when you grow up, you have a different perspective on things. You know, after you experience it a couple of times already, you're like, yeah. "Okay, I, this has happened before." Yeah, you're like, you know what? It's just life. That's just that's just how things are. You know, we can be sad, and then we get over it. Alright, next thing to talk about, trailing back to uh, Woody Allen. Yeah, I know, but we have to. I guess. <laughs> because when Harry Metzelli is constantly compared to Woody Allen's 1970s romantic comedies, it is often seen as a soft version of very talky 1970s films that focus more on character than on plot. The best romantic comedies focus on character development over romance. That is something that Carolyn Seed mentions often in her uh, When Romance Meets Comedy columns, and I'm pretty much on the same page as there. I agree. Uh, there is definitely a patter effect in this that makes me think of very 1970s uh, dialogue-driven films. There are lots of moments where when Harry Met Sally reads more like a play than a movie. It would be interesting to see it as a play. To, to draw some comparisons to filmmakers who are less dirtbaggy than Woody Allen. When Harry Met Sally, I think, also has a lot of parallels with My Dinner with Andre and The Conversation. I haven't seen either of those, so maybe I'll maybe love an episode on that. You will probably really like My Dinner with Andre. Okay. Not saying that Woody Allen invented that shit, because French New Wave films from the 1950s were a big <laughs> part of that, and uh, Allen and Francis Ford Coppola and all those other directors, they stole very liberally from those films. They just felt new in the 1970s mm -hmm. because Hollywood movies weren't doing that beforehand. 
And while Nora Ephron was applying these lessons to when Harry met Sally, other filmmakers, most notably Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith, would do their own little spin on the very chatty, not so much a plot, it's more the characters grow over the course of the film narrative. Yeah, I'm just thinking of, I mean, it's kind of slut shamey as it is. I think the 37 Dicks scene from Clerks is one of the, fun, the fucking funniest scenes in a movie. I'm 37! And yeah, that is Kevin Smith's very, very nerdy, very kind of basement-dwelling sort of virginal eye take on the... Take on the uh, when Harry met Sally, Annie Hall <laughs> conversation, <laughs> blow up type of thing. I think another distinction between Nora Ephron and Woody Allen as filmmakers is that Ephron makes her characters warmer and more likable. Woody Allen doesn't care if you like his characters or not, which I think is one of the many reasons his films are a lot more niche He's a little more open about being a dirtbag. When certain revelations came through, they were not surprising. Not at all. I mean, yeah. Manhattan is about a middle-aged man who is creeping on a 16-year-old girl, and Woody Allen actually hit on a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, you know what? Honestly, we just should have let Frank Sinatra whack him and cut that later if you want. Let's <laughs> almost Woody Allen goes And Nora Ephron also frames things from a feminine perspective. The <laughs> She fills out her characters, unlike Woody Allen in most of yeah. his films, and Unlike Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith, although I think Kevin Smith does try. I I agree. There's a lot of times where I'm reading and watching something, and as a woman says something, I'm like, yeah, a man wrote this, and he didn't even bother to ask a woman to read it. Like, come on. It's 2021, people. Uh, yeah, the Alan parallels are there whether it's safe to acknowledge them or not. I mean, Meg Ryan even dresses like Diane Keaton does in, in, in Annie Hall. She even has the hat. When I, when I say I've seen one Woody Allen movie, it wasn't even one that I realized was a Woody Allen movie until later. It was Bullets Over Broadway. Oh, eh. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was okay. So. Oh, yeah, speaking of which, while When Harry Met Sally did, did not exist in a vacuum and it pulled from things <laughs> leading into it, it also led to things. One thing that I often like to think about when... I'm just, uh, when I'm thinking about, you know, movie history and all that, is like, which film launched the most crappy knockoffs in the wake of its success? The Matrix. Personally, I think it was Halloween. I, Star Wars is probably up there. Die Hard's a contender. Ooh, yeah. When Harry Met Sally is definitely a contender. Yeah, and, and like, and I say this is my favorite, you know, romantic comedy. I don't even watch that many. Like, I've watched, like, a couple of them. And, and I have seen ones where the main couple don't end up together. Um, like, my best friend's wedding. Julia Roberts doesn't get the guy in the end. And, I mean... The Graduate, I, are we going to call it a romantic comedy or not? Because I really don't feel like it is, but that one definitely does not have a happy ending. I mean, I think The Graduate is pretty funny. I don't I think do it's too. terribly romantic. Yeah, it is funny, but it Yeah, I don't like rom-coms either, but I, I think I've watched at least 12 crappy knockoffs of When Harry Met Sally before I watched this. Yeah, I watched one called um, Maid of Honor, and it's about a, a womanizer who has a female best friend, and she goes on vacation for six weeks and comes back with a strapping Scottish, you know, uh, boyfriend, a actually fiancé, and then he realizes that he's madly in love with her, and he, you know, they've known her for years, and he... You know, it's not really, you know, when Harry met Sally, it's more straight up comedy, but it's still the whole, like, jerky guy realizes that he's in love with female friend and then fights to get her. Yeah, there are so many tropes that were either established in When Harry Met Sally or were popularized by it. I mean, this is hardly the first film where the, the couple can't stand each other at first, but then they gradually grow more and more attracted to each other and then they, they hook up together in the end. I mean... 
I think every rom-com has a few DNA strands in common with Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. and various other Jane Austen novels and sh Shakespeare plays, much ado about nothing as being an obvious example. Yeah. This, <laughs> this concept is about as uh, old as drama itself. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, you know, other aspects, the male lead is pessimistic yet quippy. The female lead is optimistic yet neurotic. I kind of want to see it be the other way around. I want to see, like, a, a, a like an eager, dorky guy with a girl who's, like, very glowery. And we kind of got that with, like... How I Met Your Mother? I was going to say April and Andy on Parks and Recreation, but Andy's not quite as nervous. He's just, he's a himbo. <laughs> Having uh, quirky supporting players who get their own little sweet love story in the background, that was Xerox to death after when Harry Met Sally yeah. did it. And, of course, the running to the streets to confess your love with an elaborate speech, although sometimes you're rampaging through an airport, although after 9-11, that kind of like, can't do I'm that like, anymore. We can't do that anymore. I'm like... Harry has to take off his shoes before he goes through airport security. And, yeah, Harry's little speech about oh. how how he loves the way that Sally orders crap in restaurants, maybe because I've just seen so many bad versions of that, maybe that's yeah. why I rolled my eyes. I could have been poisoned by the, the repetition. Yeah, maybe. It's like, this is like the codifier, you know, it's not the OG, but definitely the codifier. You know, which leads me to the next thing uh, I wanted to talk about. Meeting anticipation without falling into predictability, which is something I picked up while I was watching the Lessons from the Screenplay video essay about when Harry met Sally. Ooh, all right, to check that out. The host of that one brings up a lot of things that we've mentioned already. Uh, one thing that being the, the, one of the more notable aspects of when Harry met Sally is that there's no external conflict in it. You know, there's no bad guy, there's no uh, bitchy fiancé who is cheating on her and you need to get him out of the way for them to fall in love like mm -hmm. the wedding singer or the like uh, it's not like you've got mail or the corporate merger is in the bio of the small indie bookstores complicating things between tom hanks and mag ryan there is no character versus antagonist this is a character versus self story both harry and sally need to get out of each other's way basically and i mean get out of their own way yeah honestly yes and i feel like if there was some that they do have other partners and you know they're all they're there but it's not as important as their relationship with each other and i feel like if there was some sort of external problem some bitchy fiance some bad guy it just would have added unnecessary stuff to the movie it doesn't need it for it to work and Nora Ephron said that exact thing and uh interview i i, I dug up on youtube where she's talking about the film in a retrospective she's sitting next to rob reiner and she essentially said what you just said and if i introduce some kind of outside force like i'm not interested in that i'm interested in the two characters getting to know each other better and building a relationship together and i don't want to waste time on that crap and that crap doesn't always exist in relationships so why have it okay and uh, speaking of like character discussions in there um, they talk about Casablanca a lot, like, between, like, Elsa leaving Rift to go off with her husband at the end. I've been a while since I've seen Casablanca, but, like, I agree with Sally. I think that Elsa made the right decision getting pushed onto the plane at the end. Thematically, storytelling-wise, and also just emotionally. Yeah, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent yeah. about Casablanca, because that's definitely getting its own episode yeah. down the road. That's one of, <laughs> that's one of my favorite Hollywood movies ever. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, Elsa gives herself to Rick and forces him to make the decision, and Rick is the one that's like, you're getting on the plane with Laszlo, and I don't have to recount that. It's one of the most famous movie scenes ever. I, I don't really have a stand on that. We, in Casablanca, you don't really know what her relationship with Laszlo was like, because her affair with Rick was very intense and very passionate over a short period of time, whereas her relationship with Laszlo was much longer, and I believe they built more together, but that's not in the film. Yeah, it's not in the film, and it's not as important. So, what's next on your 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 art list? Well, that about wraps things up right. for me. Well, uh, is there anything in your yes, notes we haven't gone around to? I have, I have two things. First thing is, what was your favorite scene in the movie? As I mentioned before, probably the the New Year's waltz where their faces are betraying mm -hmm. their actual feelings to each other. Just very well done. Chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah, mine. I I gotta be 
stereotypical and just say it's definitely the test, delicatessen, fake in the orgasm scene. But my next question is, is this, this will be a real wrap-up point. Not to go on, on another tangent, but it's a Rachel episode, so we're always going to have tangents. What is your favorite love story in a movie? Uh, I'm Johnny on the spot. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> God, I'm going to think of something better that hit me harder, but... uh. We can edit this out later. <laughs> I know, you do yours first. Okay, I so here, here's mine. And, and the answer might surprise you because it's not from a romantic comedy. And it's not even like that much of the plot. But my favorite cinematic love story in a movie is from Fargo between Marge and Norm. Like, I think it's just, like, you can actually watch somebody edited only their scenes together in the movie. And I just think it's such a pure, like, simple... Well, not simple, but there's, like, a lot of depth in its simplicity. It's a real, everyday love. Like, the scene where, like, she wakes up to go on the call, and he, you know, gets up, makes his nasty wake-it-up noises, but he's like, Margie, Margie, and eat eggs. Need eggs, Margie. And he just kind of goes and makes her eggs and food. And, like, even at the very end of the movie, where, you know, she's taken down the loony guy who puts Steve Buscemi in the, the wood chipper. And he talks, he doesn't even, like, you know, ask about, tell what happened with his day first he wants to know about her first and then you know she you know loves and encourages him even if he's kind of like a big quiet guy and i mean i'm, I'm just very fond of that i think it's like one of the sweetest collection of scenes in in any movie and it's in you know fargo of all things but that's my answer Okay, mine barely counts as a movie relationship. It's actually just a scene. Okay. Once again, I'm probably going to think of something better. But well, you know, you can just tap the, it and splice from the end of this episode. <laughs> the last scene in City Lights. I don't know what that is, so you're going to have it, to explain. It, it, or it's, a, it, it's a Charlie Chaplin silent comedy. Okay. And there's a love story B-plot between the tramp and the flower girl. And it's very, very rote throughout most <laughs> of it. But in the, the last scene in the movie, after he hears the flower girl's blood, blindness and loses his fortune and she uses her money to open a flower shop and one day he's walking by the flower shop and somehow she recognizes him and he tries to run away but she pulls him together and just their facial acting against each other i melt every time okay you know what that that's a very good answer i guess it just our, our one last little thought about when harry met sally is that for a good effective love story you really don't need like all of the bells and whistles and story complications you know um shitty fiance you just need to have two characters who like each other and make it real and also this film was made by people who were writing what they knew mm -hmm. and they were also writing what they wanted to watch later on and i yeah. think that contributed to why this feels a lot more honest even when it's being very movie, when contrasted against all of the bad movies that were trying to milk this formula for all it's worth. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, Love and Harry Met Sally will probably, you know, uh, keep, on, keep on watching it. But, yeah, that's my thought. <laughs> okay, and if that's it, that's one more episode down. Join us next time for another episode. Good night. <laughs>